All right, thank you, Brian. Thank you, Robert and Priscilla. Good to have you this morning. Take God's Word and find Jonah chapter 2 this morning. I did not put it on screen because you have to bring your Bible today, okay? So Jonah chapter 2. And then I'm going to ask you to do something strange. Nehemiah asked people to do this too. I want you to stand because Christian didn't sing a last song here because we told him not to. But we want you to stretch your legs so you don't fall asleep during the sermon, to tell you the truth. But also, it's in honor of God's Word. So I'm in Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 17, then read 10 verses down. This is what the text says. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Father, once again we pray that you'll honor your word this morning in our hearts and help us to see what you want to do in our lives today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. How does God break the will of a stubborn person? By the way, we shared last week that humanity is the most stubborn thing in creation that God allows to happen. We are stubborn people. What does God do in our hearts when we're so stubborn? When I first came here, and I'm sure he's watching this morning, Jim Baker, the man in the wheelchair who isn't with us anymore, handed me a testimony on a page about three pages and he said, I want you to read that. Well, I didn't know Jim at that point. So I began to take his testimony, trying to read his story, you know, real good. And as I began to read it, Jim basically told this story. That he was coming to Trinity here and he was married. I read this publicly, by the way, and he wanted me to, so he doesn't care if I share it. He was coming to Trinity, he was married, had children, and he was uh, walking with the Lord. And all of a sudden, Jim decides that he wants to have another woman well the pastor found out about it and confronted him along with other people and Jim wanted to have his own way and he told the pastor he told God and he told everybody else I'm going to do it my way and he left unbeknownst to Jim just a few months later he was stricken with a stroke and put in a wheelchair for the rest of his life Jim just turned 80 years old, but the amazing thing about him, and Jim, if you're watching this morning, 
Thank you for letting us share your story. But the amazing thing about him is he's not bitter toward God. As a matter of fact, he's thankful. And he wants his story shared so that other Jonas might know that if you're God's child, you can't run from God. God will find you. And you might enjoy your sin for a while, but God will find you. And that is exactly what the story talks about this morning, the story of Jonah. So we're going to ask and answer the question, how does God break a strong, stubborn will? By the way, you know, God tries to work in our life too. Have you ever been sensitive to that? God wants us to get involved in something. God wants us to invest our life in ministry. And what do we tell God sometimes? Well, God, you don't know how busy I am. I've got this going on and that going on and that going on. Do you know how God handles that, by the way? God takes those things out of your life. You know, if we worship money more than we do God, what does God do? He allows things to come in our life and to let our money just fade away. If we want to worship our health and our recreation more than we do God, do you know what God does, folks? He takes our health away. Now, by the way, that's not very popular, and I probably wouldn't be a famed television evangelist this morning with a large crowd because I'm not preaching that, but my job is not to make you like God. My job is to tell you how God is, and God is unpredictable. He doesn't do things the way we think He should. God doesn't always work according to our schedule or our plan. God is unpredictable. We never know what God's going to do, but one thing God tells us is who he loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son to make us more like himself. And so that's what happened. God told Jonah, you are to go to the people of Assyria, into that city, Nineveh, the great city, the city you don't like, filled with all kinds of people that are not like you and that you don't like, and you're to share my message to them because... Their sin and their evil has come up in my presence and they don't know their right hand from their left. You're to go. And Jonah, what? Went the other way. So what did God do? Verse 17 says he appointed a fish, a storm. The sailors threw him out into the weeds in the water and apparently as the psalm reads, Jonah sunk all the way to the bottom. And as he was in the bottom and the seaweed was wrapping him up, and he saw the mountains and the hills down in the bottom of the sea, a great fish came and swallowed Jonah and kept him in its crawl somewhere around three days. Now, by the way, that is sometimes used as a, a phrase, which could mean that it's a, a period of time. You can read different articles on this, but here is the point. He was drowning. J. Vernon McGee says he was dead, and the fish picked him up. I don't know that he was dead, but here's what I do know. He, threw it, he was thrown out. He was under the water. The fish ate him. Then he was thrown up. He became fish chum. But it's amazing that while he was in the belly of the fish, Jonah had a lot of time to think. And by the way, you don't have to be in the pastorate very long and you meet people who have been in the belly of the fish. Maybe that's a hospital bed. Maybe that's a nursing home. Maybe that's somewhere where God just gives us a lot of time to think. By the way, I've been in the belly of the fish. 
I was running from God at one time in my life. God was calling me in the ministry. I don't know if I've told you this story. Things were coming in my life and had a new house, had a new piece of property I'd bought. God kept tugging at my heart, had a chance for a promotion. And in my heart, I was saying, God, you've had all these circumstances. Surely you want me to stay Driving back from the police academy one day, God allowed a rear-end collision to happen where I was bounced off of a steering wheel and a windshield. Got out, acting all tough. About two days later, I couldn't move. Whiplash set in. And God put me on the sideline for about four months where I couldn't wear a bulletproof vest, couldn't move out of a chair, got tired of watching TV. Guess what I started doing? I started reading my Bible You know what happened? My life radically changed. I suffer to this day from whiplash, but I thank God for being in the belly of the chair because that was a special time in my life. How does God break a stubborn, strong will? I want to look at four lessons today that we learn. And Jonah, by the way, learned these lessons, and we should too, about how God deals with us when we hit the bottom. What are some lessons we learn about this? Well, first of all, lesson number one is when you hit the bottom, God hears our prayer. Now, this is an interesting section because Jonah here never prayed in chapter 1. Did you notice that? The storm came, he slept, the sailors prayed, Jonah didn't pray. They asked him questions and they prayed and they sacrificed. And what did Jonah do? He didn't pray and he didn't sacrifice. Stubborn! Stubborn! Y'all ever had a, a child like this? So strong-willed. If you've never read the book, The Strong-Willed Child, you need to read it because there are special ways that you have to deal with a strong-willed child. If you don't deal with a strong-willed child in a certain way, they will, they will train you very well, Mom and Dad. But there are ways that you deal with them. And Jonah was a strong-willed child. And how was God going to break him? Well, God began the process of breaking and Jonah cried. And guess what happened? God answered his prayer. Verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Then in verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you all the way into your holy temple. Jonah had good theology, by the way. It's not that he did not know what to do. It's just that he was unwilling to do it. Isn't that the way we are as Christians? Usually the problem in the Christian life is not lack of knowledge. We have knowledge. Usually the problem is our stubbornness and our will. We want things our way. And God's going to let us know that we're not going to have it our way. But God always hears our prayers. Now Robert Chisholm, who's a professor at Dallas Seminary, wrote a little commentary on the book of Jonah. And listen to what Chislam says. It's, a, it's an interesting sideline here. He says, In contrast to Jonah, who preaches but does not pray, the sailors, back in chapter 1, offer prayers to God. In contrast, Jonah, who says he fears God but acts in a way that is inconsistent with sailors who barely know Jonah's God respond to him in genuine fear. Here you have unbelievers who are acting in a way that believers should act. 
This is a little chart, by the way, when you teach the book of Jonah. This is not just some little lit- Sunday school book. It is a literary masterpiece. And what happens all throughout this book is there is a contrast. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, chapter 3 and chapter 4, chapter 1 and chapter 3. It's a beautiful, webbed, weaving and flowing book. But notice what happens. In chapter 1, verse 4, the the crisis is on the sea. Well, when you get in chapter 2, verse 3, there's another crisis in the sea. In chapter 1, 14, there was prayer to God. Well, after Jonah hit the bottom and the fish put him in his crawl, Jonah prays to God. 115, there was deliverance from the storm, and later on, there's deliverance from the drowning. And then in 116, there were sacrifices and vows, and then Jonah later sacrifices and vows. And by the way, we'll trace this through the book as we go, but interesting parallels of how God finally breaks into the heart of a stubborn man. Another writer says, this is the first mention of Jonah praying, chapter 2, verse 3. Until now, he had been fleeing from God and hiding from him. Now, in his great distress, he finally sought the Lord. Being willing to die by drowning was one thing, but death by gradual digestion was something that Jonah had not anticipated. By the way, do you know that the acid in a fish's stomach is so powerful that within just a few days it can eat metal off of a fish hook? That's why people tell you that when you catch a fish, you know, and it swallows the hook, just cut the line because its stomach acid will digest and melt the metal, disintegrate it, and the fish will go on and live. Don't pull its gizzard out. But Jonah was down here in the fish's stomach. Now, if you wonder, by the way, how when Jonah came out on the dry land, the fish kept him in there three days, vomited him out on the dry land, can you imagine what Jonah looked like? This is Halloween, by the way. All dried up, wrinkled up, all of his skin pale. I mean, you all have seen that, right? Can you imagine this man being vomited out on on the shore and going into Nineveh? Repent, thus says the Lord. I mean, people are looking at this guy going, whoa, yeah, we better listen to this guy. Now, you don't think God just miraculously made him look like uh, he had just come out of a Mary Kay fashion show, do you? I mean, this man had three days of fish digestion on him. He was a horrid sight to look at, going through the city of Nineveh preaching, and and the people listened. But he never anticipated he would be wallowing around in fish acid for three days. By the way, when people are at the bottom, they never think they'll be wallowing around for three years, three months, three weeks, or maybe even the rest of their life. But you know, sometimes the best place to be is on the bottom. Because until you hit the bottom, you never roll over and look up. Now you have people in your family, and I have people in my family, who are running from God, and they're having their own way, and they think everything's lovely. But I want to assure you of something. God has a way of letting them hit the bottom. Now folks, listen. Stop throwing out the life preserver. I'm not saying don't be loving. I'm saying quit being an enabler. Let God do His work. I know a mother who had a son who was into drugs. Could not save money. Spent every bit of it on drugs and drugs and wasting. 
And what did the parent keep doing? Giving money. Stop that. The kid would get in trouble, go rescue him from jail. Stop that. Let him hit the bottom. God has got it under control. Let God work. Because when you hit the bottom, you finally pray. And when you pray, guess what happens? God answers our prayer. This man goes on to write, God often has to discipline His rebellious children severely, severely before we turn back to Him. By the way, what's the point of the message? Don't be stubborn. Listen to God. What is the second lesson we learn when we hit the bottom? That's this. God is in control and we're not. In chapter 1, verse 17, God appoints a great fish. He had appointed a storm. He appoints a fish. Later on, He's going to appoint a wind and a worm and a gourd. And then He's going to do all this miraculous work. But He was letting Jonah know, Jonah, I'm in control and you're not. Now, can you imagine what this was like? Jonah says in verse 3, look at this, For you cast me into the deep. Well, wait a minute, Jonah. You're blaming God for this. Who cast Jonah into the deep? Well, the sailors cast him into the deep. But what's he saying here? He's blaming God. By the way, if I was teaching this book, I would, I would argue with you whether or not Jonah was actually repentant. Because I don't think he was. Not the first time does he say here, God, I'm so sorry for being so stubborn and I'm going to change. As a matter of fact, when you get in chapter 3 and God tells him to do something, Jonah folds his arms and pouts, 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 and does it only because he's afraid of God. He doesn't do it because he wants to. And later on in chapter 4, you find that out. The reason I didn't go to Nineveh is because I knew you would forgive him and I didn't want you to and I still don't want to go. And I, yes, I do, God, I care more about this gourd than I do those people. He was a stubborn rascal. Be glad, don't ever name your child Jonah, because, my goodness, can you imagine? God was in control. You cast me in the deep. How do you deal with that? Well, Jonah had, he had good theology. What do we call this? Immediate cause, ultimate cause. What was the immediate cause of Jonah being thrown in the sea? The sailors. They threw him in. But what was the ultimate cause? God. Because he allowed it to happen and he appointed it. By the way, the same thing happens in the book of Job. The testing and the suffering that came from Job, how did it come? The immediate cause? Satan. Testing Job. The ultimate cause? God. God allowed Job to go through that and God had his hand on the whole process. By the way, do we view life like this? Or do we see life as, well, it's just a circumstance, just what happened and blah, blah, blah. Or do we actually see God's intervention and His providence in our life, even through the bad things? And I want you to listen closely this morning, folks. Why did God allow these things to happen? And I'm not trying to make you like God here. M.R. DeHaan wrote a little book called Brokenness. Listen carefully. Brokenness. If you've never read DeHaan's book, you should write it down and buy the book. Because this is what he says. God allows things in his children's life to get us to the point of brokenness. We are so pride-filled. 
We are filled with it, folks. I'm telling you, every one of us are eat completely up with it. And God finally has to get us to the end of ourselves, where we will submit and surrender to Him. And when we finally surrender and we let go of our pride and we live our life in brokenness and humility, that is when God uses us. And that is when He is glorified in our life. But He was teaching Jonah He was in control. Charles Spurgeon, a preacher from yesteryear in England, said this. He said, Jonah went into the fish as an Armenian. What, what is an Armenian? Free will, you, know, you do what you want to do, and uh, I do this, and I choose to do this, and all this, and you know, God, God can figure it out later, but I'm going to... He says, but he came out a Calvinist. He said that, not me. But Jonah knew that God would get him. He knew that. And he also knew God was in control. What's the third lesson we learned? Well, it's on the screen, so it's no surprise. And here it is. The absence of God's presence is is not as pleasant as it might seem. Notice the irony here in verses 3 and 4. Jonah says, I'm going to just go down to verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your presence. Do you remember what verse 2 says? Back in chapter 1, you go to the city... But Jonah rose, verse 3, to flee from the presence of the Lord. Same word here. Same word. What did we say the presence of the Lord meant last week? It wasn't that he was trying to run geographically from God, but except if he was quitting the ministry. He was in God's presence as a prophet, and he didn't like the job God gave him to do. He couldn't preach prosperity before. He had to go to people he didn't want to and share a message of grace that he didn't want to share. And he wasn't going to do it. And he wanted out of God's presence. He said, I'm quitting God. I quit the ministry. And then he learned out, you know what? It's not as nice to be out of God's presence as he thought it was. You know, there are a lot of people who think, if I can just get God off my back, life would be a lot more fun. I mean, I look around at all my friends and my co-workers, and look at their... They have so much fun. If I could just... Put off some of these things that God tells me that I should not do and just go out and do them. I would have a lot of fun. But you know what, folks? When you get out of God's presence and you're not walking with Him anymore, it's not nearly as fun as it seems. Look deep into the life of all those people that you think are having all that fun. And you know what you find? You find emptiness. You find shallow, shallowness, self, pride, idols. And you know what all that stuff leads to eventually? It leads to emptiness. Emptiness. As the one man said, most people spend their life trying to climb the ladder of either success or happiness only to get to the end of the ladder and find it was leaned against the wrong wall. How true that is. It's not as fun outside of God's presence as it might seem. And then the fourth lesson we learn is if deliverance is granted, it'll be God who is the one who caused it. In verse 10 of chapter 2, which I didn't read, uh, verse 9, when Jonah says, I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. He cries this out, God, you're the one who's going to deliver. And it's almost as if God waited for him to say that. You know, Jonah, you're going to have to say this. Notice how the text reads, Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Just puked him right out on the land. By the way, that word uh, puke and vomit is a, a word that Jesus uses over in Revelation. Did you know that? About a church that was neither hot nor cold. And he said, when a, when a church lives like that, you know, trying to please the world and please their self and not worry about pleasing God, and this and that one minute, God said, you make me want to vomit. Don't do that. And you think about that as our own individual life. And when we live that kind of a life, what does God say? You make me sick. Make my belly hurt. So we don't want to live like that, do we? Now, I'm not here to be the great down and outer. I have to share this with you because this is the story of Jonah. But if salvation comes, it comes because God gives it. Now, by the way, there's one mention of Jonah in the New Testament. I want you to turn over to it. It's in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus believes in Jonah. By the way, a lot of people struggle. And I was going to show you a video clip this morning of a man who was swallowed by a great whale shark. In uh, I don't remember what kind it was. It's one of those whales that eats the chum in Massachusetts just this past year. Swallowed him up 90 seconds. Took him out and belched him up on the land. He had a scuffed kneecap, but... He he tells the story and people can't believe it. So they're saying, oh, Jonah has to be true because this... No, listen to me, folks. Way too small of a God. Uh, If you do not think that God could have appointed a fish to go pick up a man on the bottom and God could have either kept him alive or resurrected him, you have way too small of a God. God is way, way, way bigger than what we think. We think we have to explain everything by natural cause. And if our rational pea-brain mind that we think is so sharp and smart that, by the way, was created by God, that can't connect four corners of logic on every occasion, you know, logic doesn't answer everything. Logic was a tool that was, was developed to try to help people reason. But logic doesn't answer everything. Logic doesn't answer miracles. And that's why after the Enlightenment, miracles were by and large rejected. And that's why today, God is by and large rejected. But we're way past that era. We're in something that's totally off the map. But Jesus mentioned this story of Jonah, but it was in a mention of judgment. Notice what happens. I'm in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Just read this to you. This is in the section of Matthew where Jesus is being denied and the great uh, blasphemy of the Spirit has occurred back in verse 22. But verse 38, Jesus has just healed. Now, folks, are you listening? He has healed a lame, he can't walk, a, a deaf, he can't hear, and a blind man. Now, by the way, you ever tried that? He can't walk, he can't hear, He can't see, and oh, by the way, I forgot to say, he was possessed with demons. This was the worst case scenario that could have ever happened. He was brought to Jesus, and here's this this 
man laying there and Jesus heals him. And now he can see, he can hear, he can walk, and he's not possessed by demons anymore. And you know what the religious leaders of Jesus' day said? Now listen to this. There was no doubt that a great miracle had occurred. Nobody could deny that. Do you know what they said? Oh yeah, he did it, but he did it by the power of the devil. Now by the way, this is the rationality of the hardness of man. They were, they were as hard as Jonah. Harder. Now notice what Jesus Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Can you imagine that? Look at the sign he just did. But he answered, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, hold on for a minute. How do you think Jesus knew Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish? You think Jesus is the one who put him there? You think Jesus is the one who was there with him in a convicting way? Notice what he says in verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And then he goes on to talk about the queen of the south and so forth. But the hardness of the heart. You know, by the way, Jesus believed in the story of Jonah. And I don't know about you, but I do too. There's a little girl... She was observed by her pastor standing outside a preschool Sunday school class in between services. And he went up to her and noticed under her arm was a big coloring book. And it had a picture of Jonah and the fish. So the pastor, feeling a little bit cranky, went up to the little girl and knelt down and said, What do you have in your hand, little girl? She said, This is my storybook about Jonah and the whale. He said, Well, tell me something, little girl. Do you believe that story about Jonah and the whale to be true? And the little girl said, Well, of course I believe this story to be true. So he pushed a little further. You really believe that a man could be swallowed up by a big whale, stay inside him all that time and come out of there still alive and okay? You really believe that that can happen? She said, Absolutely. The story's in the Bible and we studied about it in Sunday school today and I believe it. The pastor said, Well, little girl... Can you prove to me that this story is the truth? She thought for a moment and said, Well, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. The pastor put his hands on his knees and said, Well, what if Jonah isn't in heaven? The little girl paused and she put her hands up on her side. She said, Well, then you can ask him. (laughs) The faith... Of a child. Now let's hammer this home. What does this story teach us? Here are some lessons, but what does this story actually teach us? Well, first of all, it teaches us this. Desperate people pray. You know, when you're desperate, you will pray. And that is exactly what God wants us to do. Individually, we can talk. Nationally, we can talk. By the way, our, our nation 
is not desperate. We're, we're getting close. Did you hear me? We're getting close. I mean, and I don't want to get political here, but I do read the news. How in the world can any nation pay people who tried to invade our country $450,000 a family because they were offended? $450,000? You say, well, I haven't read that. Well, I did. And it's actually coming up to pay illegal people trying to cross the border because they were offended. $450,000? Has a nation lost its mind? And then to try to push down a nation's throat, cultural Marxism. I have pounded this in the ground. Hopefully you remember what it is. Cultural Marxism is basically the destruction of the nuclear family to destroy the nuclear family, to to disintegrate the man and the wife as a family unit to have children, to drive that down into, to divide, which is the sole reason of cultural Marxism. And then along the way, program the minds of children to sexualize them and to make them think that they are either asexual or non-sexual, whatever, you can be what you want to be. And, and fund this and pound this down people's throats where people do not know whether they're a boy or a girl. And if they think there's something, then we are supposed to come along and totally ignore 2,000 plus years of history since Jesus. Throw that completely aside and say, thank the Lord we're so smart today that we figured it out that a man can be a man but not be a man. Because he can be whatever he wants to be. And then we'll punish you and take away your funding, and might even take away your pulpit, if you say anything against it, because that is a hate speech. And if you don't like it, then we'll teach it in areas where you have no control. Our nation is not broken. And then we live in a place where people in the elite can live however they want and do whatever they want, and allow their children and people who are around them to do whatever they want, and we don't say a thing. You know why? Because you're not an elitist. They can make rules and walls for themselves that are not the same for you. This nation is not broken. We can get more concerned over trees and seas and pipelines And anything that you want to say, and we can pay millions upon millions of dollars to slaughter babies in the womb and call it choice. We are not broken. But I want you to hear me, folks. If you think that God can't put this little peanut nation called the United States in the belly of a whale, you've got the wrong God. Because he can take us down to the depths of the pit. What did he tell the nation of Israel? If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves. What does it mean to humble self? It means to admit we're wrong. And we've been having it our way. And we've been shaking our fist at God and telling him what we want and this and that and blah, blah, blah. That is not humility, that's pride and arrogance. And anytime we take God's word and we go right against what he says, 
And we say, we're going to do it our way and we don't care what God says and and God's going to do what we say. Get ready. I'm telling you, get ready. And you and I might be getting ready. We might be getting ready to see what hyperinflation is really like. And don't tell me inflation is not here. Who are you kidding? We might get ready to see the Markets drop and the oil rise and everything else go crazy. Let me ask you a question. Are you ready for that? Listen to me. Don't panic. You know, God's people try to, we, we try to panic because we want control of everything. Oh, I've got to get all my money out of here. I've got to, i got to, i got to. Calm down. God's in control. He takes care of the birds of the air. He'll take care of you. God might have to put our nation in the belly of the fish for a while. You know, everybody always begins to scream, well, Jesus has to be coming because things are going crazy in the United States. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. He can wait 2,000 more years if he wants to. He might get our nation in the belly of the whale and he might let us wallow around in some fish acid for a while. Figure out if we really like all this stuff that's going on. And he might break us. And we might have to live through it and be faithful. That's what he wants us to do, isn't it? We might have to preach to people that we don't like to preach to. We might have to share things with people that we don't like with. You know, by the way, I asked this question last week, but I ask it again. You ready to go to Nineveh? You ready to go rub shoulders with people politically who aren't like you? You ready to go talk to people? who are confused about sexuality, or either they're not confused, they're just determined with an agenda, and they know what they want to do. You ready to talk to them? You ready to share truth with them? You ready to love them? Be honest with them and tell them that their ideas are evil to God? You ready to take the heat for that? I mean, can you imagine the day we live in, folks? I mean... You know, the head of the administration sends out an email and says, you're going to not just agree with this, but you're going to bless it, and you're going to blah, blah, and you're going to bow, and, you're going, and you say, you know what? I, I know I, I want to be a respectful employee, but I have to tell you, I don't agree with that. Well, you'll agree with it, you'll consent with it, or you'll find another job. I'm telling you, you're, you're in a hard place. Because then you're like Daniel in the lion's den. What's going to happen? The lion's getting ready to eat you alive. And you may very well have to pay for it. Because God may not rescue you. And you might be like the three children that are thrown in the fiery furnace and you're going to have to have their attitude. What was it? You know, my God can deliver me if He will. But if He doesn't, you better know this. We will not bow. We will not bow. We will burn before we bow. And maybe God's toughening His church up a little bit. Maybe He's letting the church get ready to go through the belly of the whale. By the way, you know, the church is in an interesting state today. I'm not talking about Trinity. I'm talking about the church as a whole. You can divide that in different segments here in the West. The Western church is largely eroding. I don't know how else to say it. Taking God's Word and throwing it away, making a God that we like, 
and then making a God who lines up with this woke agenda, CRT agenda, all this other radical stuff and trying to make God into that. God's not that, folks. He's not that. He's not a critical race theory God. God is not a a gender-confused God. And by the way, all of this gender idea and sexuality is an absolute affront to the very beginning of the book of Genesis in chapter 126 where God made them male and female. I mean, this is like the ultimate assault on God and saying, we don't believe you. Maybe we're getting ready to go into the bellies, the the whale's belly. And then there's some of us. You know, we're living our life. We feel God trying to move us either closer to Him or trying to get us to do something that we need to do. And what do we say? God, I'll give you so much, but not that. No, no. And so what does God do with our life? He allows things to come into our life. Some of them may be very unpleasant. What is He doing? He's driving us to Him. You say, well, God, you better not do that to me. You'll drive me further away from you. And you know what God says when we say that? Oh, don't worry. I'm big enough to bring you back. I'm big enough to bring you back. Some people in my family ran from God when He was trying to pull them to them. And guess what they did? They ended their life. You know what? They knew Him. You know what happened after they ended their life? God drew them right back. He drew them right back. God's big. Listen, He's big. And He loves His children. And He loves His children even when His children disobey Him. And He will search them out. And God will win. And you might even leave this world in shame. But I'm going to tell you something. If you're God's child... He'll get you. And you're going to be His child and He's not going to stop. The late Warren Wiersbe wrote this. David, there it is. Let me see if I can get to it. This is good. Y'all ready for this? How we respond to discipline determines how much benefit we receive from it. According to Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, we have several options. Number one, we can despise God's discipline and fight. Why are you doing this, God? I'm angry at you. Number two, we can be discouraged and faint. Oh, it's not going to go on. Just life's over. I can't stand it. Number three, we can resist discipline and invite stronger discipline. Possibly even death. Or, and this is the one we all want, right? Or we can submit to the Father and mature in faith and love. Now stop. How, how do you do this? This is a whole other sermon, but here it is in a snippet. It's, it's easy. It's hard, but it's easy. 
when, when we see things going on in our life and we recognize these things from the hand of God allowing them to happen, pleasant and unpleasant, we simply stop and say, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to teach me about you and about myself? And Lord, give me a heart to hear and ears that will listen and a will to obey what you're trying to teach me. And Father, let me humble myself. I'll tell you a short little instance in my life because by the way, I'm not preaching to you this morning. I'm preaching to me. Something happened in my life totally out of my control. Nothing I could do about it. But boy, did it make me angry. I mean, to the point of rage that I haven't had in a long time. And you could do foolish things. You could go take vengeance into your own hand. You know, God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And when the first time we go to strike, God just pulls back and says, oh, let's see what the fourth member of the Trinity is going to do here. Let's see how good you are from your omnipotent throne. This is what goes on in my heart. So, you know, boy, anger. And then you say, God, you know what I determine about myself? I determine I like to control. I don't like things to be unpleasant. I don't like to watch suffering unnecessary. And I just wanted to change that. You know what God says? Well, how do you think I feel? How do you think I feel? You think I like it? But here's the big question. Do you think I'm not going to deal with it? John, you have forgotten who I am. And you just stop right now. And you humble yourself. And you turn your will over to my will. And you let me work. Those are hard lessons. Wearsby goes on to write, Discipline is to the believer what exercise and training are to the athlete. It enables us to run the race with endurance and reach the assigned goal. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, my son, for who the Lord loves, He chastens and He scourges every son. Father, this morning we thank You for Your chastening. We want to submit to it and to bow to it. And we want to worship You in the midst of it. As hard as it is, help us to humble ourselves. Thank You for the story of Jonah which teaches us how You break stubbornness in the lives of Your people. But Lord, more importantly, it teaches us that You never ever let go even in the grave so god we just bow our knees before the great god of heaven and earth and we thank you this morning that a god so big and a god so great can love people so small and that you love us enough 
that Jesus came and gave His life on the cross to pay the sin debt for our stubbornness and our self-will and our pride and our determination. And He died on the cross. And not only did He pay for that, but He gave us what we could never earn on our own. And that is His complete righteousness. So that this morning we stand in Your presence as righteous as Jesus is because of Your grace and because of Your goodness to us. So Father, in each heart and each life, may we bow our knee and may we surrender our will and our pride and may You control our life. We thank You for Jesus. Thank You for Your work in our hearts. And we also thank You, Father, for this upcoming missions conference. When we hear what You're doing around the world in the lives of people, as You're doing this same thing there in people's hearts, encourage us and help us not to be like Jonah and not want to get involved in what You're doing around the world. Help us to do that with our prayers and our gifts. And even as Robert challenged us this morning in the release of our family and even ourselves to go for you. So work in our heart and do what you want us to do. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.